You're listening to a History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History. For more information, go to historyhub.ie. In this podcast, a keynote from Partitions and Borders, a comparative and interdisciplinary conference. The conference was jointly organised by University College Dublin and Jawaharlal Nehru University, New Delhi, and took place in UCD on the 24th and 25th of May, 2018. The conference received the financial support of the UCD Research Seed Funding Programme, Decade of Centenary's Internal Award Scheme 2016-2018, and also the support of the School of History, the School of Politics and International Relations, and the UCD International Office. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. The second keynote of the conference was given by John Coakley from University College Dublin. His lecture, The Irish Border, The First Hundred Years, was introduced by Amanda Nettlebeck. Keith Cameron, Professor of Australian History at UCD. Well, it gives me great pleasure to introduce Professor John Coakley. Uh, as many everyone here from UCD will know, uh, John is Emeritus Professor and former Head of the School of Politics and International Relations here at UCD. His research expertise lies in the politics of nationalism, Irish and comparative politics and ethnic conflict. Amongst his uh, many professional contributions, he served two terms as Director of the Institute of British-Irish Studies and a decade on the Executive of the International Political Science Association, including as Vice President. His recent books include Non-Territorial Autonomy in Divided Societies, published last year by Routledge, and the sixth edition of his co-edited collection, Politics in the Irish Republic, which was published this year also by Routledge. His forthcoming book with Oxford University Press, co-authored with Jennifer Todd, is From Sunningdale to St Andrews, Negotiating a Settlement in Northern Ireland, 1973 to 2006. Um, uh, So please welcome him for this paper, which is titled The Irish Border, The First Hundred Years. Thank you, John. Uh, And thanks also to Connor for the invitation. It just struck me in the course of the day that there's one other person that we should probably thank, and that's the person because of whom we're here. Um, uh, Tim um, did refer to him this morning. This is the man who, was, who founded the Irish Volunteers, which went on to become the IRA. He was prominently associated with the... Tre- he's probably the Irish politician most associated with partition because of his, the unfortunate fact that he was a member of the Boundary Commission. It's <laughs> Professor Owen McNeil, who's been staring down on us uh, all day. Uh, as it happens, my, I began my student life here in UCD at a time when the memory, the legacy of Owen McNeil, long dead then, of course, let me add quickly, um, uh, uh, <laughs> the legacy of Owen McNeil was still very much alive, still very vivid. Uh, so we had to read in first year, we had to go through his book, uh, Phases of Irish History. So uh, uh, I'm going on to, uh, let me begin by quoting another colleague from the ECD department. In his very influential and thoughtful book on the partition of Ireland, published 35 years ago, Michael Leffen observed that, and I quote, in 1911, Irishmen of all political opinions would have been amazed if they could have foreseen the division of Ireland into two separate states ten years later. So my object here is to ask whether, almost a century after partition, any surprises may await us as regards the future of the partition of this island. Uh, It seems undoubtedly to be the case that contrasting north-south political trajectories and social processes over the decades served to consolidate uh, partition. These divisive forces were driven by northern unionist determination to remain separate from the south, 
but also by Southern nationalist commitment to establishing complete independence of the UK, even if this meant consolidating the line of the border. In Michael Latton's words, the well-nailed coffin of Irish unity was carried to the grave by mourning nationalists as well as by rejoicing unionists. I'm not sure how sincere the mourning was, but I'm quoting Michael in any case. Uh, as we approach the centenary of partition, though, it's worth asking whether the coffin of Irish unity uh, was indeed conveyed prematurely to its grave. Uh, might it be that a combination of geopolitical development, demographic evolution and attitudinal change have transformed the significance of the border, bringing the future partition once more into question? Uh, is the line on the map, in other words, adopted so casually in 1920, likely to leave a deeper imprint or, or might it, on the contrary, begin to wither away? Uh, so I've illustrated there uh, an almost random selection of the border. But where is the border? Um, uh, it's impossible to predict from looking at the fieldscape where exactly the border is. In fact, it's here, and um, this is the topic I'll, I'll be addressing how firm is that? How likely is that to persist? So in proposing to answer this question, I look in turn precisely to three key dimensions of change that I mentioned. At the implications for partition of the internal and external dynamics of UK politics, notably the Scottish question and Brexit, uh, the uh, shifting demographic and spatial pattern of the Catholic-Protestant relationship, and finally, at evolving patterns of public opinion and constitutional choice, especially on the Catholic side. Uh, so, to, um, to, to, to begin, uh, it, it, let me look first at the geopolitical dimension. And I suggest that the empire in which the sun never sets uh, is no more. It ceased to exist. The decline in the UK's imperial standing uh, fundamentally transforms attitudes towards Ireland, opening up a whole new set of possibilities. In the 1920s, in the years around the First World War and in the 1920s, for British politicians, the fear of the domino effect was very considerable. If we cannot hold on to Ireland, a small country at our own back door, how can we hold on to India? So this, this provided a particular motivation for holding on to Ireland, but insufficient to hold on to the southern part of the island. After the Second World War, the momentum towards decolonization had a similar type of effect, weakening uh, British determination to hold on to its colonies. Uh, the end of the Cold War furthermore transformed the strategic significance of Ireland, greatly diminished the strategic significance of Ireland, permitting Peter Brook, Northern Ireland Secretary, in 1990 to say that the British had no selfish strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland. A, a phrase with a significant missing comma, no comma after selfish, which, which utterly transforms its meaning. <laughs> uh, in addition to this, and but related to it, the weakening of kith and kin sentiment um, has had a similar kind of impact in removing Ireland and Northern Ireland more specifically from the zone of immediate interest of the United Kingdom. So opinion polls in Great Britain showed very low support for union with Ireland, strong support for troops withdrawal, uh, more people supporting Irish unity than any alternative until the early 21st century. In the, the last poll that I was able to find, which is about 2003 and 2004, there was in fact a spike in support for the union. But prior to that, uh, uh, more, more British voters had, more British respondents in surveys supported 
Irish unity uh, than the Union. Uh, in addition, and also related to this, the very powerful Tory Unionist Alliance collapsed. It came under strain already in the early 1970s, in 1972, after the fall of Stormont. It came under particular strain after the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, and in fact, it was discontinued the following year. Uh, so that, that powerful link between the Ulster Unionist Party and the Conservative Party is no more and is long gone. Uh, there is, of course, the current notorious, uh, well, notorious from a particular certain perspective, Tory DUP marriage, but I suggest this is one of a marriage of convenience, not a marriage based on love. The second uh, geopolitical consideration has to do with uh, Scotland and the future of Scotland. Uh, and again, as is well known, Scottish independence may have the effect of fundamentally transforming geopolitical relations on these islands, between North and South and the island of Ireland, between Northern Ireland and England-Wales, and between Northern Ireland and Scotland. Uh, this is particularly the case because it's not just a matter of the United Kingdom being transformed. It's the loss of a part of the United Kingdom that is particularly attractive to many Ulster Protestants. Uh, strong cultural ties between Northern Ireland and Scotland, strong settlement uh, from Scotland originally in the 17th century, uh, pa traditional pattern of migration to Scotland, allegedly. I tried to validate this, but I found that, that in fact, the Irish, Northern Irish migration to Scotland is much, certainly much less strong than I had been aware of. And it's not, Protestants are no more likely to migrate to Scotland than are Catholics. And the numbers, I say, are small if we look at the Scottish census of 2011. And then there's the Ulster Scots language and culture uh, that many um, Northern Ireland Protestants see as linking them to Scotland in particular, to Great Britain in general, but to Scotland in particular. Furthermore, the Scottish issue hasn't gone away. There's continuing strong support for independence, but it's not majority support. 45% in the referendum, and I was really struck, I did an average of the first four polls of 2018, the first four polls of this year, the when you'd exclude the don't knows, the proportion supporting Scottish independence is exactly 45%, same as in the referendum. Uh, so, is this a major risk to the Union? Well, maybe. But, uh, the, the, the Scottish um, independence lacks majority support. We, we can't be quite sure of the level of English opposition to this. It would probably be very, very considerable. So the British establishment, the English in particular, distinguish between Scotland and Northern Ireland. Scotland may not go, uh, well, subject to certain qualifications. Uh, somebody gambled on a referendum and uh, won, as it happened. Uh, but the attitude towards Scotland is very different than the attitude to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland may go. Um, so British governments have agreed this since 1973. And this is articulated most solemnly in the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, which makes it clear that if a majority in Northern Ireland want to leave the United Kingdom, this will be supported by the British government. Uh, and then there's, there, there's the uh, Catalan example. Probably not very good for... Um, from the perspective of Scottish nationalists. So the dilemma here seems to be that if we look at the kind of territorial image of the United Kingdom, it's, a, it's a very, not a very appealing one because part of the island to the west is missing. If we look at, the, if, if we look at this, what happens if Scotland disappears? Well, the, the mental image of the United Kingdom is even more peculiar than Northern Ireland is further... Is, is even more remote from London because of the disappearance of Scotland. 
endangering Northern Ireland's own part of the you know, participation in the United Kingdom. But it seems to me that this is endangered in any event, even if Great Britain remains um, as a, a, a single, moderately unified state. The third big question then is the, the Brexit issue. And here I suggest that aside from its, the impact of Brexit on public opinion, it threatens the constitutional status quo in the long term by bringing the border back centre stage. It's, it's, the border is now a live political issue again. I was really struck by the fact that on the morning after the referendum, people whom I know have no interest in Irish unity, or as far as I was aware until then, have no interest in Irish unity, were suddenly talking about the prospects of Irish unity, and that babble about the prospects of Irish unity has been going on ever since. And it has to be taken very seriously. Hard Brexit, without the backstop. The backstop refers to special arrangements to facilitate um, the absence of a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Hard Brexit without the backstop damages the two economies, the Northern economy, the Southern economy, probably a third economy as well, the British economy. Uh, and it raises the prospects of border conflict of varying levels of intensity. It seems un unimaginable to me that a border, we can have a peaceful border with Northern Ireland. It's almost inevitable that uh, the border will be subject to attack immediately, an attack from moderates. Now, the moderates won't go out with guns. Uh, but that will follow. So first customs officers appear. Uh, they have to exist somewhere. They may be living some distance from the border or, or have be based some distance from the border, but they have to be near there. They're, they constitute a target, a very welcome target from the perspective of dissident Republicans. Uh, that will mean police will have to be called in to protect the, uh, the um, customs officials. But once police come in, they become a target and uh, the army have to come in. So we need the, the border will almost inevitably, it seems to me, have to be remilitarized. Uh, what happens if the backstop is introduced? Hard Brexit with the backstop, it seems to me, that accentuates the special status of Northern Ireland and may well provoke loyalist paramilitaries, get violence from the other side. Uh, this is a bit un, 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 unclear. It's not, it's not by no means clear why loyalist paramilitaries would want to do this, but... It's a real possibility. Also, only soft, soft Brexit, rather, is likely to reduce the significance of the border. So, to conclude this discussion of geopolitics, the geopolitics of partition, I would conclude with a reminder that geopolitical realignment can, and it very often does, ignore public opinion. It does not need to take account of public opinion. Uh, and doesn't even need to take account of powerful political forces or paramilitary forces. Determined political or military mobilisation may force a ruling power to leave a territory. But such mobilisation does not necessarily have the capacity to force a ruling power to remain in that territory. This is a, a point that is very, very often, more often than not, I'd say, overlooked. It's an important difference between the Republican position in Northern Ireland and the Loyalist position. So, in other words, for groups like the Republicans, independence or decolonist movements succeed all over the world. Not always, but they have the capacity to succeed all over the world. It's loyalist movements face a fundamental challenge. How can you fight Britain in order to remain British? If you're Pied Noir in Algeria, how can you fight France in order to remain French? There's an inbuilt contradiction here. So, it seems to me that large polities, the UK in relation to Northern Ireland, the EU in relation to the Republic of Ireland, uh, may act regardless of even the strong wishes of smaller groups, such as Northern Ireland in the one case and the Republic of Ireland in the other. So I go on in the second part of the paper 
to ask what has happened to the six counties. So to what extent has demographic change uh, transformed the, the position? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's difficult to measure what's happening on the ground. It's easy enough to have overall figures on the Catholic-Protestant balance in Northern Ireland. But I want to see what's happening on the ground at, at, at the level of local, local territorial units. It's very hard to do that because we can't, um, we can't really project information forward. So we can't... Uh, there was a fun, fundamental change took place in 1973 in local government boundaries. And data before and after that point are discontinuous. So there's only one direction in which they can be reconstituted, and that's by attempting to recreate the counties by grouping electoral wards. So I've tried to do this. Um, electoral ward boundaries are not stable. I had to do this using two couple of different data sets. Uh, so I was able to, uh, what I'm going to illustrate is the way in which the uh, population, the demographic balance within the Northern Irish counties has changed. I'll also look at the overall pattern at Northern Ireland level using census reports and also using a very interesting 5% um, anonymized sample of the census um, with a huge number of, of, huge number of, um, of, of records, uh, 91,000. Uh, so just to, to remind you again, here is the position on partition. Actually, on this map, we can see more or less uh, an argument for placing the board in a particular location. So... Uh, here is the territory of Northern Ireland. And we can see that inside that, every county, each of the six counties, in 1911, the year for which you know, the census, and it was the 1911 census on which the partition line was based, we can see that inside that, every county is a substantial portion of Protestants, but only four of a Protestant majority, two, Tyrone and Fermanagh, have had, had at that time um, Catholic majorities. So if we look at the position for those six counties, what has happened since then? Now this, uh, I illustrate here the position within each of the six counties. A bit confusing to follow that, so I'll break them down into three groups of two. So first, there were uh, two counties which have for long had a Catholic majority. And that Catholic, Fermanagh and Tyrone, that Catholic majority is consolidated. And that's particularly the case in respect of Tyrone. Another two were, uh, had, had a small Protestant majority. Uh, that's Armagh and Londonderry, or Derry, uh, and, and Derry here, I'm grouping the county borough with the county. And what has happened there is that once again, by the end of the 20th century, both of these had a Catholic majority, a very substantial Catholic majority. Finally, there were two counties, Antrim and Down, uh, where Catholics were in a minority, fairly small minority, and this has continued to be the case. Admittedly, in the case of Antrim, you notice that there's been a big upsurge in the Catholic population, largely because... Antrim includes Belfast, and uh, the Catholic population in Belfast has been increasing quite, quite dramatically. Uh, so the position is summarised here. So if we, once it was the case that of the six counties, uh, two were Catholic, four, four were Protestant. Now it's the other way around. Four are Catholic, with quite substantial Catholic majorities, and the remaining two are Protestant. We can track this development at the level of the new uh, districts, the local government districts uh, introduced in the early 1970s. So here was the position in 1971, and what you notice is a kind of a greening of Northern Ireland subsequently. So if we go back to, if we move on four decades from 1971, the first year of which data are available at this level, as I said, they can't be projected backwards. 
Uh, if we move on to 2011, we get this remarkable greening. I'll just simply show the transition again. So you notice that uh, areas like uh, Moyle, which is here, and uh, Cookstone, which in 1971 were predominantly Protestant, now have sizable uh, Catholic majorities. Overall, in Northern Ireland, here's the pattern of demographic change. Now, some of these data have had to be, I've had to compute them. Um, it becomes very difficult between 1971 and 1991 to get, uh, to get accurate figures. So these are based on corrected census data uh, and, and estimates. But they show a very, very clear pattern. Uh, an almost a fish-shaped, we get an almost fish-shaped image. So here's the proportion of Protestants rising until the middle of the 20th century and then falling. And here's the proportion of Catholics falling at the middle of the 20th century and then rising steadily. Uh, uh, the two, both groups now fall below 50% of the population. And the reason for this has to do with this category here, others, 7% of the population, mm -hmm. people who can't be assigned to one of these two big groups or the other. Uh, this is likely to continue. So if we look at the uh, age structure of the two populations in 2011, uh, you'll notice that as you move down the, the age cohorts, the proportion of uh, the lead by which Catholics outnumber Protestants increases. So uh, by 2011, it was the case that the pop every, all age cohorts less than 40 um, in all, each age court less than 40, a, a majority was, sorry, Catholics outnumber Protestants. In ten, by, the, by, the, by the time of the 2011 census, we can predict that this process will have continued. We'll be able to, by 2021. So we'll be able to say that um, uh, in each age cohort below 50, Catholics outnumber Protestants. So uh, and um, I've tried to project what the probable population balance would be in 2021. And by my computation, it will be 46% Catholic, 46% Protestant, and 8% uh, other. Uh, now, what's the political significance of this? Well, it may not be as great as is sometimes believed. Um, so I, I want to ask about the extent to which Northern Ireland voters conform to particular stereotypes. So the the traditional image of Northern Ireland voters, and indeed voters on the island of Ireland, was a form of electoral determinism, religion, structures, voting behaviour, and constitutional preference. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll come back to that. Uh, so we find predictable but weakening forms of national identity, and national identity I'm referring to whether people feel British or Irish or Northern Irish, communal identification, that refers to a question introduced uh, in uh, surveys in the late 19, in, the, in the 1980s: Are you a unionist or a nationalist or neither? And there we find in communal identification the same same kind of imperfect pattern. Uh, party support, same kind of thing. Not all Catholics vote for nationalists, uh, and not all Protestants vote for unionists. Uh, however. Uh, if we look at another, a particular attitudinal variable, support for the union, we find that Protestant commitment remains rock hard, rock solid. Uh, Catholic commitment to Irish unity is not by any means rock solid. The relationship between the communities is not symmetrical. Uh, so I'm going to docu document those, those points. No, the, the, first, the traditional position is sum, so, summarised in something that would shock and horrify Rogers Brubaker. Um, uh, the, his, the, 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 the position in the, according to the Boundary Commission in 1925. So they said, religious and the, the, they were 
the question is, do we need a plebiscite? The answer was, no, we don't need a plebiscite. We have the results of the 1911 census. We know that people are Catholic, they want Irish unity. If they're Protestants, they want to remain in the Union. So that's what essentially this particular sentence means. Uh, and there may have been some truth to this. So it was undoubtedly the case that from the 1880s onwards, from the general election of, 19, of 1885 onwards, we can predict the result in every constituency on the basis of knowing the religious composition of the constituency. So if a constituency is 70% Catholic, the nationalist vote will be 70% or slightly less, and so on. Uh, however, this was to change over time. So we find Protestants identifying as British, but also as Northern Irish. In the past, some identified as Ulster people, and some even identified as Irish. But that Irish category disappeared, began to disappear in the 1970s, and was gone by the 1980s, or virtually gone by the 1980s. Uh, Protestants identify as unionist, or neither unionist or nationalist, when asked that question. Uh, uh, and Catholics identify as nationalist, or neither, but almost never, Catholics almost never identify as unionist. This question, this is a question now about communal identity. It's not about constitutional preference. Constitutional preference is separate. So some of these um, Catholics identify as, they call themselves nationalists, but they support the union. Uh, so when we look at voting behaviour, we find that Protestants vote only for unionist or centrist parties Catholics vote only for nationalist or centrist parties in general. In other words, almost no Catholics since 1968. Some did in 1968. But since then, almost no Catholics vote for a unionist party. Almost no Protestants vote for a nationalist party. They vote for their own bloc or for the middle. And by the centrist parties, I mean the Greens or the Alliance Party or the Women's Coalition in the past. However, these patterns do not determine attitudes towards the union. So supporters of unionist parties support the union. Supporters of nationalist parties do not support Irish unity in general. That, which, that sounds like a strange remark, but I'll, I'll uh, develop it further. And there seems to be a strong relation with Brexit attitudes. In general, uh, people who identify as nationalists, who identify as Irish, who are Catholic in background, overwhelmingly reject Brexit, about 90%. Those who are not, those who identify as British, who, are, um, who identify as unionists, who vote for unionist parties, and who are Protestant, are much more divided. They don't overwhelmingly support Brexit. Uh, they're, they're, they're split on the matter. Now, we can see how imperfect the relationship between these is if we look at the relationship between national, between nas the relationship between national identity and religious background. So I've summarised it here for uh, three groups, Catholics, Protestants, and those uh, who can't be placed in either of these categories. And you, you, you notice again that uh, these blocks are they're rather divided. Um, so in the case of Catholics, strong, uh, strong identification with, um, with, the, with the Irish label, but qu quite a few identifying as British, 10%, or as Northern Irish, 27%, uh, a category of growing significance. In, among Protestants, we get a similar kind of pattern, except with even fewer identifying as Irish, and there's the overall pattern for Northern Ireland. Now, if we look more specifically at support for Irish unity, um, uh, we, we get a very, very interesting pattern, and a pattern that often I, uh, results in disbelief of people to whom I make this point. Uh, so I've reproduced here the results of almost all 
surveys where a comparable question has been asked. In fact, unfortunately, I've included some where a comparable question has not been asked. The very first one in 1968, the question was, was quite different. Uh, but I had no other data, so I wanted to in include some indication for that period. Uh, uh, so uh, if we look at the pattern, uh, the point that I made earlier was absence of symmetry comes through very strongly. Uh, so if, if we looked at Protestant support for the Union, it's rock solid. Now here, this line here refers to Protestant support for Irish unity. And what's surprising about that is that there have been occasions when it's actually quite high, up to 9 or 10 percent. Normally it's much lower, 5 percent, 4 percent, 3 percent. But the really striking finding is on the Catholic side. Uh, so here we see Catholics hovering at about 50 percent in support for Irish unity, up to 2006 then falling sharply since then. Now, uh, that, 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 so that, that particular line of the graph needs to be qualified. So uh, there are two ways of moving that percentage up. So one has to do with excluding don't knows. If you exclude those who say don't know, then the percentages of Catholics voting opportunity would be a little higher, but not very much. In addition to that, in 2007, there was a significant technical change, uh, and for technical reasons, the proportion of Catholics saying this word Irish unity fell. But in any event, uh, you'll notice that these data go up to 2016. I have similar data for 2017 and 2018, but unfortunately using a different question, uh, that show broadly the same pattern. The significance of that is we're talking about polls that took place after, um, after the Brexit referendum. So even after the Brexit referendum, which many people thought would really shake up uh, preferences in Northern Ireland, the evidence still is after the Brexit referendum that the old patterns remain fairly, fairly unchanged. Now, they, as I'll indicate in a moment, they may uh, change in the future. And if we look at attitude towards Brexit, uh, among supporters of the parties, I've done this for two points in time, surveys we conducted in 2016 and 2017, what you notice is that again, on the, on the Catholic side, the two nationalist parties, support for Brexit overwhelming 92% of SDLP supporters. Sinn Féin was a bit lower, but they've made, made up for that, now 93%. Among the uh, unionist parties, surprisingly enough, no uh, fall in a, um, apparent support for, 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 for Brexit. I thought that they would. The figures essentially the same in 2016 um, as in 2017. So, to conclude... Do any surprises await us in respect of the future of partition? Um, of the three dimensions that I considered, one is relatively predictable. Uh, we can be fairly confident that there will be substantial demographic convergence of Catholic and Protestant communities by 2021. There seems little doubt about this. However, all pre- and post-Brexit opinion poll data show strong Catholic support for the Union. Uh, but it's important to note, this support may be brittle. Uh, the Brexit shock may well push Catholic Union supporters and some Protestants uh, in the direction of Irish unity. There is some evidence of, 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 of this happening, of change happening. But nobody knows yet what Brexit means, so it will take some time for this uh, to have full effect. So the form taken by Brexit is crucial. It depends on what variety of... Is, is it a hard or medium hard or soft Brexit... Hard variants could trigger a shift in Northern Ireland's status, uh, uh, either indirectly, 
by means of some kind of a market deal or a, a, a customs deal, or directly by changing Northern Ireland's political status. In, 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 this would take place in the long term. And in any case, I suggest the border is likely to continue because we shouldn't forget that the border is protected by the Good Friday Agreement. Irish unity does not entail disappearance of the border, though its significance may be transformed. This is written into the Good Friday Agreement. Again, the agreement is done in such a way as to provide a solution either under the current constitutional status quo, where Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, or under a new dispensation where uh, Northern Ireland will be part of an Irish state. So the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement still apply in that latter context. So Northern Ireland, it seems to me, then began its life with special status of a very profound kind. Devolved government endowed with quite significant powers in theory and even more substantial powers in practice. These powers and Northern Ireland's autonomy may well have been reduced since the early 1970s, but special status has remained. It's therefore surprising that the DUP reacts so angrily to this status being supplemented by some kinds of customs and trade deal, especially since this not only leaves the constitutional position intact, but might, in certain scenarios, see Northern Ireland attracting privileged economic status. That's what special status might mean. Ultimately, after almost 100 years of partition, the Irish border is simultaneously an enduring fact of life and, paradoxically, a vulnerable international frontier. Uh, it's enduring because of its deep roots, recognised by de Valera in 1921-22, not, not, not all that well known, uh, recognised by de Valera in 1921-22 in document number two and document number, what we might call document number three, his two alternatives to the Anglo-Irish Treaty, one with Northern Ireland and the other without Northern Ireland. Uh, this was written into the 1937 constitution. Again, not a well-known fact. It's heavily disguised in Article 15.2.2 which provides a mechanism for Irish unity, uh, nor leaving Stormont intact, uh, and subsequently endorsed by de Valera, Lamas and others. It's protected by the Good Friday Agreement, which provides for the continuation of Northern Ireland's status in the event of Irish unity. But as an international frontier, the, vo- the border is vulnerable. The threat comes not so much from the shifting Catholic-Protestant balance in Northern Ireland, that may turn out to have no impact at all on this, as from the double challenge posed by Brexit. On the one hand, the consequences of Brexit, depending on its precise provisions, may provoke a sharp shift in public opinion. On the other, the very mechanisms associated with Brexit may ultimately place Northern Ireland behind a customs and trade border in the Irish Sea that reinforces the existing constitutional border. So to rephrase Michael Leffen's words, quote, at the beginning of this presentation, Irish people of all persuasions may well end up being amazed at the redefinition of the Irish border in the last three years of its first century. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this History Hub podcast. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and many other podcasting apps, such as Podcast Republic. If you enjoy our content, please rate and review our channel, as it helps others to find out about our work.